The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Celebrating 10 years. Created by Carl The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. So we'll just get started. Is that okay? Oh, sorry, I did not get over. <laughs> so, um, everybody, you're welcome to the final uh, panel of the day. My name is Linda Doyle, I'm the Dean of Research here. Um, and it's a great pleasure to be here today on such a fantastic event. I mean, the quality of the event so far has just been mind-blowing. Um, and I want to say congratulations to the Long Room Hub. We're very, very proud of it in Trinity. And it's fantastic to have so many people here who started it all. Um, we're going to be talking about what does it mean to be human in the 21st century. One of the things that the Long Room Hub is absolutely fantastic at Lovely. is public humanities. And the public humanities means that it actually engages hugely with the public through enormous number of events. In fact, I would echo what Jane said earlier, I can't believe that the, the small number of people in the hub managed to put on these events. And uh, I, I actually recently was taking a photograph of a queue outside one of the events because that is how popular they are. And when I look back over Dublin in the last decade, one of the things that has changed for me, I think Dublin is a place that any day of the week you can go out and you can engage with intellectual ideas and conversation. And I think the, the Trinity Longham Hub has been one of the actors in kind of making that happen. So I think it's, it's just fantastic to be here and celebrating that. Um, I'd just like to make a couple of points before I introduce the panel. Uh, I suppose the thing I think the Hub really gets is that if you ask a question like what does it mean to be human in the 21st century, that you can only answer that by bringing multiple perspectives to bear. And, and they kind of really, really understand that. So, so I come from a, a digital perspective, an engineering perspective, and I think, I suppose, when I think about that question, I think about the analog and the digital, and how the human has a digital existence as well. Um, and in fear of lowering the academic tone, um, I thought I'd give an example from, does anyone know the series on TV called Girls? Yeah. You know, so, these, so there's, there's one episode in Girls where they're all on holidays and they're all bickering with each other and having a horrible time. And at one point, one of them gathers them together and says, um, I want to take a photograph because I want people on Instagram to know that we're having a great holiday. <laughs> and and I, I think this kind of echoes the world we live in, where, where how you live digitally seems to matter more than how you live physically. Mm. And they're the kind of questions that I, I, I find very interesting. And if you take that, I suppose, to the most serious plane, and I think Nick touched upon it, and, and the surveillance capitalism world in which we live, and everything we do is kind of monitored and measured for, for profit and gain, I think there are lots of really, really hard questions. And when I summarise it from my perspective, um, the digital world is a very invisible world to lots of people, with lots of things acting on us today. To which we have to push back lots of you know deep fakes and lots of like difficult understanding of what's real around us and for me what the trinity long room hub does is help us see it helps us make what's invisible visible through bringing these multiple perspectives to bear and we're going to demonstrate that without any demoitis because we have three real people here um, uh, on the panel so i'm going to briefly introduce them so if, if I were to say what's in common with the three, what, what do the three people in the pa uh, panel have in common? And for me, 
They are three exceptionally passionate people. There are three people who are expert in their own disciplines, and there are three people who bring creativity to those disciplines in different ways. So I think we're in for, for, for a treat. So we have Donald, Donald Hernan. So I know Donald actually through his work on thermal management. I'm sure you're all going to be jumping up and down and, and saying, what the hell is that? And wanting to know more about it. But Donald actually uh, is an, was an engineer working, is still working in Bell Labs. And I knew him first through very, very technical, disciplined work. But now Donald is head of experiments in art and technology in Bell Labs. Uh, I think it's the most fantastic title. It's drawn from uh, the experiments in art and technology that had happened in the 1960s when Bell Labs worked with the cutting-edge artists of the time and did the most fantastic performances in the 60s in New York. And I think it's, it's, it's amazing that you have that title and that you are bringing your technical and creative knowledge. And he is a musician himself and, and very creative, so we're delighted to have Doolan here. Uh, next to Doolan, many people will know Philip King. I, I suppose it's too hard to describe you in a few words. He's great at everything, would be, would be one, one summary. So, uh, a fantastic uh, artist, well known for the South Wind Blows. Many people here might have attended Other Voices, which is the most fantastic event. Um, and I think he also has one of the most poetic and beautiful voices to listen to. So, we look forward to what Philip has to say, and it's hugely engaged with, I suppose, how creativity, technology, diaspora come together. And then, at the end of the panel, we have Carmel O'Sullivan. Carmel is a professor in education here in Trinity. Uh, I think a very, very inspiring person. She's involved in, in many creative endeavours herself. One of the projects I find most inspiring that she does, she leads the LEAD project, which is a really fantastic way of getting people who have no hope and no chance uh, of jobs into the job market. And I think what we will see here is through these three talks, three very, very different perspectives on the question of what does it mean to be human. So I think we're going to start with Carmel, Carmel go on to Duno, and then go to Philip. Um, there's been a request that people stand here. I know some of my panel are happy to acquiesce to the request and some are not, but that's what it means to be human. So, Carmel, <laughs> <laughs> whichever. Ta an ahas erum gatuga kurig dam lawrts fwin reimsh unthuksha awil an chaspoi dam chama an rodakilin sheva dena samfeho heluish. What does it mean to be human in the 21st century? Uh, I was rather pleased with uh, technology kind of going whoopsie doozy. Um, hence, I brought a few practical props by way of illustrating, I suppose, some of the points I want to make um, on this very important subject today. Before I go much further ahead, in a sense, um, the world that I occupy is the world of arts in education, particularly the use of drama and theatre in education. And I want to share a little bit about that in a moment. But in plain, plain language, the work that we do means we're not putting on a character suit if we were in a theatre performance and playing a part in a sense, as we saw with our Beckett example. Our work is much more about the development of the person. So we only stand in the shoes of another person. To begin to feel, to begin to sense, to begin to understand, to empathise with other points of view. And hence, the shoes on the table, you may or may not be able to see them, represent for me, in a sense, some of the missing voices in this kind of debate and discussion. When I was asked to consider this, and I'm very grateful to the Hub for inviting me to, to, to have this opportunity, um, 
I straight away thought of some of the people in the groups, the community groups that I work with, and what would they say in response to this question? I'm fortunate in having a wonderful group of colleagues, all, I suppose, centred around this, this amazing hub where you have opportunities to look at things from sociological, psychological, anthropological, cultural, heritage, linguistic, and medical, all sorts of different points of views that allow me, as a, as a researcher and as a practitioner, to begin to grapple what does it mean, what can it mean to be human in the 21st century. But some of the groups can be quite disenfranchised, can be quite on the edges rather than in the middle of things. And it's those shoes there that we look at to begin to understand what does it mean for them. And a simple example, I think um, Linda mentioned there, one of the projects we're doing at the moment is called Career Leap, Local Employment Action Partnership. And this is an example of where I bring this world of, of arts, of playful learning, of critical inquiry, of social justice into my engagement with young people who probably have fallen through various nets along the way. Young people who are not in employment, education or training and who find themselves really missing out on that uh, increase in employment. Uh, we're very fortunate to have had the, the support of the Minister of Finance um, in the funding that we get and he often talks about the increase in employment. We heard actually yesterday another 3% but it's the harder to reach young people. That's the group that we're interested in engaging. And last week, I had a wonderful opportunity to bring three young people, two of whom would have extremely difficult circumstances. Um, both fathers, unfortunately, had, as they would say in Cork, met a bad end. Um, and um, both mothers uh, were, are heroin addicts to date. Um, so there's not a lot of support. One of the young people is 26, and one of the young people is almost 25, a young woman. The third young person is 19. And we found ourselves trying to get an opportunity in the facilities aspect, the facilities industry. And we were out on site in the basement, out in south of Dublin, and I began to really understand what it does mean to be human. As we were knee deep in tidying up this basement, it was a trial opportunity, and I'm glad to report that all three have been hired by the company. It is magnificent. I was asked when I was there by the caretaker, what cleaning company I was with. <laughs> I was going to call it the TC, and I thought maybe I better not say, the TCD, the, the Trinity Cleans up. Uh, but, um, so uh, we, we just left it at what it was. We were working for you know, a, a, an inner city group. But at the end of it, it was the first opportunity for a young woman of 25 years of age to have some cash, because I was very grateful to that um, partner of ours in, in this business that he said, I, I'm going to give them some money. They'll get their pay properly, but I want to give them some cash. So they went home with the money in their hand. And on the Lewis, coming back in, after a fairly hard day's work, drenched with sweat, filthy dirty, the young woman said to me, she said, ah, that's what it's about, Carmel. This is living the dream. This is what it's about. And it was her first money she'd ever earned. First money, ever at that age, and yet we're hearing there's you know, employment shortages. The barriers that some people face are quite significant. The other young man said, well, it's not about the money for me. Um, he said, I just want to prove myself. I want to get that chance. That's what it meant for them. 
to be human. And that those types of issues around inequity in society, inequality, I think have been tackled, um, certainly in this century. In the last century, um, we were looking at issues to do with advocacy, empowerment of the other. Now we're finally got to where people can stand in their own shoes. And I think that's what the arts has allowed me to navigate through different spaces because it allows me that luxury and all the people I work with to stand momentarily and see things from other points of view. It is an extremely valuable pedagogical approach. And it's how I work in that career league programme. It is what has defined us as a, a successful. We've had up to 90% success over the last four years with people sustaining in, 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 in their um, career opportunities and also in further education, which is, is really testament to the people relationships that we are about. A second example, perhaps, that I might just mention, in a way, is about um, this world, this 21st century. We know the problems. We know there are challenges with digitalisation, with an increased population size, with climate change, etc. And I want to come to that in a moment, in terms of, of the impact of that on education. But the space, the freedom that has been offered us, um, was brought home to me in another area I work in, is an area called social drama. And some of my team members here are, are here, I see Sarah and others who work with me on that project, um, where we work with young people who have autism, an autism spectrum disorder. And I remember um, a young man saying to me, um, oh my goodness, Carmel, you know, are you alive, are you human, when he saw the gadget attached to my tummy, because even though I am not a mobile phone user, shamefully, have never seen Facebook, no idea what LinkedIn or any of those look like, haven't a clue, let's be honest. Um, I am a product of technology. And he said to me, isn't that very clever? You're charging your phone from your tummy. And um, those types of insights that all members of our society bring is what the 21st century being human is about, allowing them to speak. I had the great privilege of standing beside Adam Harris, who many of you will know from the organisation as I am, representing uh, the autistic community. And uh, we were in IT Sligo opening an autism-friendly campus, campus, and Adam took off his shoes, back to the theme, um, because they were hurting him. Muggins stood very painfully in kind of slightly high shoes, crippled, let's be honest, but that sense of what was required in this suit, I was stifled, um, the shoes that were killing me, but he had that comfort and that confidence. That world is only beginning at the start of the 21st century, but it's a world I want to be part of. I know people are very nervous about artificial intelligence, and that, that fear as well, I think, is misplaced. What we do in my drama classes with children, with adults all over the world, and here with small children as well, I've worked with children as young as 18 months, uh, two years uh, and onwards, is we look at what's next. We've created, my friend, the Dalek. I have many toys. I was going to bring my life-sized uh, stormtrooper. I have a giant-sized Dalek, which takes over the whole apartment. I have all sorts of paraphernalia. That playfulness, that ludic, that, that quality of, of, of using technology, I find fantastic. But we're waiting for the next creation. So we're not afraid of technology. We embrace it. Having seen what uh, Nick is doing there is just phenomenal. And that's what I'm interested in us developing. Time up. Is what is next? 
the technology is going to allow us to be more fully human. The mundanity, the inequalities of the world over the decades will, will change. So what's next? And that's over to us. If I might, I've got three lines of a poem from Brendan Canelli, who's a wonderful uh, poet and um, colleague of ours, um, which I always love. And it's called Begin. Of course, I'm going to start at the end with the four sentences, but anyway, the final words are, Though we live in a world that dreams of ending, that always seems about to give in, something that will not acknowledge conclusion insists that we forever begin. And I'll leave you with that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Hey everyone, uh, I'm an engineer, as Linda mentioned, I work for a tech company, uh, Nokia. You might know that name, you might not realise that we are leaders in building out the infrastructure of telecommunications, so how your phone connects to the internet and other phones. Think 4G, LTE, 5G, that's what Nokia does today. And then Bell Labs is the research arm of Nokia, so that's where the two brand names kind of come together just for a bit of context so you know what the hell it is that Nokia do today. So I was very fortunate to be given the opportunity to to found a new research initiative in Bell Labs in the last few years called Experiments in Art and Technology and as Linda mentioned it's named in honour of this seminal bringing together of engineers and artists back in the 60s and 70s. In fact, it all started with a series of performances in New York called the Nine Evenings of Theatre and Engineering, with a bunch of Bell Labs engineers, Rauschenberg, Cage, Whitman, Rayner, all these massive art names at the time. And that was so successful, and those two worlds, when they came together in this way, saw so much value from it, they decided to create this not-for-profit organization called EAT, as it's known, Experiments in Arts and Technology, which became a global matchmaking organization, bringing these worlds of engineering, science, and the arts together. Um, and Bell Labs' history and engagement with the arts is largely considered to be EAT. But in fact, we have a much longer and stronger history fusing art and technology way beyond the EAT that very few people know about. It goes all the way back to the 20s, all the way up to the 80s. Um, invention of stereo sound, spatial audio, TV, voice synthesis, uh, what else is there? Uh, Computer-generated music, computer-generated graphics, animation, computer-generated art, on and on and on. It could go on forever. So not just the technical and scientific accomplishments of Bell Labs with nine Nobel Prizes and all these other really significant scientific achievements, but there's this massive history of bringing these worlds together. It was in the fusion and bringing and the collision of those worlds that I would argue gave Bell Labs the immense creativity it had and kind of set it up as this foremost industrial research lab that has ever existed. Now, fast forward to the 80s, and EAT as a not-for-profit fizzled out of existence. Our interaction with the art world in Bell Labs fizzled out of existence for various reasons to do with parent companies divesting and AT&T and market crashes and all that kind of normal stuff. And then 35 years later, it was 2016, the 50th anniversary of this nine evenings, bunch of people all over the world reached out to us in Bell Labs, but especially in the New York area. And they were asking us to take part in these celebration events of this seminal bringing together of these worlds. We got these requests, 
didn't know what to make of them, hadn't heard of Nine Evenings, hadn't heard of EAT. We had institutionally forgot about this, which is shocking. Um, and at the same time, magically, we were already thinking there was something missing in our research, how we were, how we were thinking about our technology, the role technology should play for the betterment of humanity, both in the near term and the long term. We, quite, we hadn't quite put our fingers on it. And then we got invited to these events, which were basically just networking, consuming alcohol in a bar with a bunch of artists and a few of us Bell Labs engineers. And every single one of those conversations blew our mind. It gave us different perspectives and different dimensions of thinking that we were completely blind to. I mean, horrendously blind to these perspectives. And basically, not, not just myself, but others, but completely changed our perspective on the role technology should play. And that was back in 2016, and we decided, let's dip our toes back in the art and tech water. Let's start experimenting, collaborating. Let's see where we can go with this sensibly within the constraints of a tech company in our modern society. And let's see where the value is. And we built up a program from just a few years ago where we had just a couple of artists. Uh, it was 5% of my time I was doing another job. I had to beg, borrow, and steal resources to make these collaborations work. So now today we have a dedicated research lab with a number of full-time employees and we support 24 artists, mainly in the US and in Europe. And what I would say about from a technology perspective, and I think this is critically important just globally but also in the context of Ireland, the future of humanity is deeply wed to technology, whether you agree with that or not. All future business, all future companies, all of your existence is completely wed to technology. I don't think there's any way of getting around that. And I always say that I think technology has done a great job connecting humanity, and now it's time that technology connects us back to our humanity. And there's a lot of big questions that need to be asked in the tech world, in the areas of STEM research. For example, when I went through my training, how you would never think about the consequences of how humans might use this technology 5, 10, 20 years down the road. So there's something fundamentally broken there that we need to fix. But today, with our artistic collaborators, we engage with them, and I'm very proud of our program. We have this long-term residency program where we work with artists for more than a year at a time, typically. It's deeply collaborative, uh, purpose-driven, vision-led, and the exchange of information that we have in both directions is highly valuable to both sides of the equation. And from that, and I can give examples later maybe, that engagement has completely changed our entire research direction and how we are developing technology and how we think about technology. So it's been immensely impactful for us, and I could give you a hundred examples of where that engagement with an artist has totally changed our actual research direction, how we're actually developing technology, which is extremely powerful. And that brings me to maybe a little bit of a critique I have of this world, which is not my world naturally, I'm an engineer and I'm in industry, <coughs> but this world of the arts, and I've, you know, I've gone all around the world and talked to people and one of the concerns I have is I think this world, this community, is completely undersell underselling the impact you could have for humanity in its totality, but in particular with respect to technology and tech companies. What I mean by that is, I see a lot of artists say, you know, it's our job to step back and critique. I say, no, it's your job to completely step in and have impact and influence. And I see uh, massive benefits in that. And I think more of that needs to happen. And I would love this community to wedge yourselves deeply into the technology world because for the future of humanity, for humanity's sake, 
If you don't do it, the same nonsense out of Silicon Valley will persist forever. And by the way, it's not just the Valley. They get a bad reputation. It's, it's all engineers everywhere, to be honest. They're just the ones that make the most money from it. <laughs> but this is going to persist forever because we are not trained to think about the human aspect and the human intersections. So I, I plead you and I plead everyone. And what I, what I ask you to do is, I don't like this ad hoc nature of how these worlds are brought together. What I see is either highly transactional, which is driven by marketing, and it's very short-term and has no long-term value, or it's exceptionally ad hoc. What I mean by that is someone says, in university or, or industry, do you know what, I've got a great idea. We need to improve our innovation, our creativity. Let's bring in an artist. Let's throw them in a room with some of our engineers, and as you're sure it's something magical will happen. That is the greatest load of nonsense I've ever heard <laughs> yes. in my life, and it really upsets me because that is the wrong way to do anything in life. I mean, when would you ever do anything serious in such an ad hoc way? It has to be deep, purpose-driven, vision-led, with intense strategic um, foresight and purpose behind everything you do, very thought out for the culture of your organization, what your long-term goals are. And I, I just pray with this community, and I'm willing to work with you as a technologist to help, from our perspective, to help you help us. Thank you. I just want to put this, um, this little piece of technology on the table here um, to go along with your, um, your shoes. Is that right? Am I not? Ah, technology. I'm going to put this little piece of technology here on the table. It's, um, it's a harmonica, uh, portable music. It's uh, referred to by many people as a tin sandwich. And you know, people used to carry these things around. And many, many years ago, I was making a radio program in Wexford. Now, there's a family of Murphys um, who live in Carrigabannell in County Wexford. And they're marvellous people. And old Phil Murphy, a uh, really brilliant harmonica player, um, I said, how did you pick up the harmonica day one? And he said, it's fantastic. He said, when you're cycling along the country road, you take the harmonica out of your pocket and play away like video. <laughs> just, 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 just fantastic. So I'm just going to leave that there for a moment. Einstein said, The intuitive mind is a sacred gift. And the rational mind is a faithful servant. We have created a society that honours the servant and has forgotten the gift. So, in a transactional world, in a world that is becoming increasingly transactional, um, I think this is a very relevant piece and a very relevant thing to say. I fell in love with the poetry of Mary Oliver many years ago when I read a poem called Today. And she said, in that poem, today I am doing nothing. I am letting all the voodoos of ambition sleep. And that line really captured me. And as I was coming down here today, I hopped into a bookshop and I bought um, a little anthology of Mary Oliver's. 
And when we're talking about this business of what, you know, technology and human, etc., and I, I came across this poem at the beginning of the book, and it's what, what I can do. The television has two instruments that control it. I get confused. The washer asks me, do you want regular or delicate? Honestly, I just want clean. <laughs> Everything is like that. I won't even mention cell phones. I can turn on the lights of the lamp beside my chair, or a book is waiting, and that's about it. Oh yes, and I can strike a match and make a fire. So, here we are at this crossroads with humanity, if you like. And I always think that, you know, we have a design fault, and that's the thing that makes us human. When you ask the question, you know, what makes us human, and why is that important? I think that we have a design fault. And when we look at that design fault, we would say that's the thing that makes us human. It makes us fallible. It makes us charming. It makes us vulnerable. But it also makes us voracious consumers. And we, I mean, we just can't keep the oil on the ground. You know, we're sort of addicted to consumption, one way or the other. And even in the face of an existential climate threat, we can't stop consuming. So we might ask ourselves the question, you know, will machines be smarter? Will the artificial intelligence show us a way? Will we need them to show us the way? And when will that, or when might that happen? You, 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 you referenced um, Shazana Zhubov, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, the fight for a human future at the new frontier of power. And at the very beginning of that book, she says, we are going to be working, are we going to be working for a smart machine or will we have smart people around the machine? It's a very interesting question. Of course, here we are in the heart of the university where knowledge is created. You know, who will own the knowledge? Who will own the intellectual property? Usually, of course, it's the people that pay for it. And we'll come to that question in a moment. And then the next part of the question, how can the arts and humanities contribute to more human-centered innovations that enhance society for all species in a technological age? Well, I would say to you that the arts matter and the humanities matter for several reasons. First, because creativity, culture and the arts are essential to our well-being and valuable in their own right as uniquely irreplaceable human activities. Second, for the individual and personal benefits that they confer by enabling us to imagine, invent, interpret and communicate diverse ways of seeing the world. And third, and very importantly, for the communal and societal value and diversity that they create, promote, and share. Um, the really wonderful John Chusa, um, who was a broadcaster but also was the director of the Barbican in London for many years, said the arts matter because they embrace, express, and define the soul of a civilization. A society without arts would be a society that has stopped talking to itself, stopped dreaming, and had lost interest in the past, and lacked curiosity about the future. Well, here we are at another crossroads in Ireland, we would say, a hundred years of independence down, and about to look into the second century of, of an independent Ireland. And what does that mean, I mean, independent Ireland these days? What, 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 what would we say that means? 
and that we would be able to pay our way in the world, that we would be in control of our own destiny um, to some degree. But, you know, I would say, you know, we have an opportunity. There is a portrait of a possibility in front of us to be able to embrace the creation of a balance, if you like, between the human and the machine. The machine is arriving and ultimately the machine is going to do things. It's, it's just the way it's going to be. It's going to do things that we used to do. It's going to continue to take jobs. And, like, I'm a sort of a gig economy veteran. You know, um, I sort of grew up in a world you know, where, you know, the gig is the next thing and you don't know where the next one is going to be. So we're, as artists, we're like well up for what's coming down the track. We live with very high levels of uncertainty and access to relatively limited and sporadic resources. And Donald, I'd be very happy like, to, to step into the room. You know, but where is the funding going to come from? Jane talks about funding, we all talk about funding. Where is the funding going to come for the artist? The average artist's wage in Ireland is 14,000 euros a year. Now, I know lawyers who don't get out of bed for that sort of money. You know, I, 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 they'd be saying, I couldn't possibly look at it for that, you know, to ask 20 grand, you know, for me to take this case or to look at it. So, I mean, do we value the artist or not? And you touched on it as well earlier on, Jamie, because you said, here is a building, you know, we have a building. But who populates the building? Who populates the gallery? Who does the work? The humans do the work. So we need to get real here. If we want a balanced, ethical society that is pluralistic and diverse and in the second century of independence in Ireland, we need to get real and we need to treat artists and the people who create <coughs> intellectual property with respect. Let me just tell you one very short story, and I, I related this story in another building in Trinity some months back. But sometimes we don't see where the value lies. And everybody just talks about the value proposition. So if we look at the depictions of Irish people um, who, that left after the famine, say, economic migrants who left here with virtually nothing. And if we look at the depictions of those that left, we would say they're carrying nothing of value with them. They don't have any bags of baggage. And if we were being unkind, we might say that these people are without worth. Ergo, they are worthless. But when these people arrived in the cities of the eastern seaboard of the United States, to Chicago, to Boston, to New York, to Philadelphia, and they unpacked their emotional baggage, the stuff we can't see, the songs, the tunes, the stories, they became part of the business of music. In fact, they were at the invention of Tim Alley. So you take somebody like Irving Berlin, who came from a Jewish shuttle in Eastern Europe and wrote Alexander's Ragtime Band. And you take George M. Cohn, who wrote Ivy Yankee Little Danny, and you put them together. You have Tim Alley, and all of a sudden, the stuff we couldn't see, when it became tangible and listenable to, became a business because it became intellectual property. We left an indelible thumbprint on the making of the American music business, and with that music, America used it to colonize the world. What a powerful thing. And I just want to end with one poem of Maya Cannon's, which 
absolutely captures this thing. And she says, carrying the songs, is the name of the poem, and she says, it was always those with little else to carry who carried the songs to Babylon, to the Mississippi. Some of these last owned less than nothing, did not own their own bodies, yet three centuries later, deep in their hearts, their bones, they carry the world's songs. For those who left my country, girls from Downings and the Rosses, who followed the herring boats north to Shetland, gutting the sea's silver as they went, or boys from Renafast who took the dairy boat and slept over a rope and a body. Songs were their soul's currency, the pure metal of their hearts, to be exchanged for other gold, for other songs which ring out true and bright when flung down upon the deal boards of their days. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.